Hi, this is Happy Tram from Homespun Tapes, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Um, this week I've got a really cool guest for you. This is, I, I think it's probably not an exaggeration to say that there aren't many people who've done more to encourage and support people into playing instruments um, in all sorts of genres, but, you know, particularly in, in the bluegrass and acoustic world. Um, and that is Happy Tram from Homespun. Um, lots of us will have seen Happy's videos, used Happy's audio courses, um, and know of Homespun already. But I just wanted to chat to Happy and, and hear a bit about how the company started um, and the people they've worked with and just, just celebrate some of the, you know, this this is a company that's been around for 55 years and has helped thousands and thousands of people like me and hopefully like you. So here comes the interview. Um, stick around and check out the bit right at the end because Happy has given all of us uh, a discount code we can use to get some money off and I will be listing a few of the the sort of the the lessons that I love most and the, the stuff that I bought from Homespun and we'll, we'll chat about some of Happy's favourites but there's a discount at the end so stick around and get your discount code because you've got a few weeks to grab some bargains. Um, yeah but here comes the interview. My guest this week on Bluegrass Jamalong is Happy Traum. Happy is a great guitar player, great musician, great teacher, but most of us probably know Happy through Homespun. Um, Happy has been in so many of our homes with some of the world's best musicians teaching us to play, inspiring us, uh, and it's a joy to have him here. Happy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here with you. Uh, I think I'd like to start just by saying thank you on behalf of me and behalf of, you know, behalf of the hundreds of thousands of people you've helped over the years. I think for musicians like me, like the inspiration might come from Tony Rice or Doc Watson or Bill Monroe or somebody, but the support and just the, the people you've encouraged and enabled and, and allowed to grow as musicians over the year are like countless. And it's, it's just been a, it's a joyous thing. And I thank you very much. Oh, yeah, thank you. That's uh, it's a nice tribute. Uh, we have we've been doing this a very long time, um, and when we started out, we had no idea that it would build to what it's become fifty something years later. It's almost fifty-five yeah, it's, years now. Incredible, and um, and it, it by the sound of it, it started out as a a sort of problem-solving thing for you to be able to teach people while you were away. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I had written a couple of books uh, about guitar styles, mostly one called Finger Picking Styles for Guitar. And that was a pretty popular book. It was the first of its kind because I took it upon myself to um, transcribe the music of people like Doc Watson, Etta Baker, um, Elizabeth Cotton, traditional Merle Travis, traditional finger pickers. Mm. And, um, I painstakingly took solos that they did and the songs that they did and put them in this book. And it was the first time anybody had ever done anything like that. So, um, people started to write to me who had the book and said, I don't know how these songs are going to go. And I live out in somewhere in the Midwest or maybe in Britain or someplace. And, and they couldn't find these records at that point. You know, you couldn't just dial up Spotify or something like that. So um, I figured, well, maybe I should just make some lessons on tape and based on my first book, on the Finger Picking Styles mm -hmm. book. So as best I could, I tried to show how these, um, you know, the, a lot of it is based on a on an alternating thumb rhythm and syncopated uh, treble notes, the Merle Travis kind of was one of the people who invented that style, but uh, Mississippi John Hurd and Elizabeth Cotton, all those people continued it on until the folk revivalists of my day were also playing that. So I also included uh, Dave Van Ronk and Mike Seeger and people like that. Mm. So, um, you know, I did my best to replicate that on a, they were audio reel-to-reel -reel tapes, actually. Nowadays, people don't even know what a tape is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but they were literally reel-to-reel -reel tapes that we copied from one to the other, um, 
We'd have what used to be called master tapes. There, I think it's not politically correct to call them that anymore, but uh, <laughs> they would be the uh, the main tape, and then we would uh, run it off on our literally our kitchen table and uh, copy it, and then my wife Jane would pack it up and take it to the post office and send it out to people. And we put a few little ads in places like Sing Out Magazine and uh, Rolling Stone was just starting the same year we were. And so was Guitar Player Magazine. Both of those started in 1967. That's the same year we started Homespun. So we started taking little classified ads and strangely people started saying, yeah, I want these. And uh, so when we got a good response, we said, well, we got lots of friends here in Woodstock and people that I play music with. Maybe I'll get them to do some tapes, too. And that's so what kind of first... started. Going. So who were the first people that you got involved in? Well, I think um, my brother, Artie, who was uh, mm-hmm. had just moved from New York City to Woodstock at that point, did some lessons for me. Um we had uh, Kenny Kosek, who's to this day a great bluegrass fiddle player who was based in New York, and he did a basic fiddle lesson series for us. Um, David Bennett Cohen, who had just finished playing with Country Joe and the Fish, his mm. piano, kind of a blues ragtime piano player. He came, we had a little upright piano in our house, and he came in and I set up some mics and he did a couple of series of lessons on blues and ragtime piano. And that just got us started. And people, Oh, another one was Bill Keith, great mm. uh, banjo player who moved to Woodstock right around that time. Uh, so I corralled Bill and got him into my living room. All these were recorded in literally in my living room with simple, like a wall and sack reel to reel recorder. And, uh, uh, a couple of funky microphones. I mean, it wasn't, I never expected it to be anything very, you know, long lasting. What did I, you know, what did I know back then? And I guess so, the, uh, the name Homespun came from all that then. Literally came, recorded at home, Jane, duplicated at home. Exactly. Jane came up with it and she said, well, we're spinning these tapes on the table here. You know, let's just call it Homespun. So it was her, her brainchild. And Jane's been, my wife has been a part of the, business uh actually probably the bigger part of the business i do the music stuff and she keeps keeps it all together so (laughs) she's the reason it still exists really and that must have been quite a quite an undertaking sort of posting like reel-to-reel tapes out to people and just you know the cost of the tape and the cost of sort of shipping it around the world to people yeah um it it was. Um, in fact, the, the most challenging part was putting tablature together. And how do you, at that point, it wasn't so easy to go to a quick copy place and just copy it. So um, actually, the publisher who published my books had a Xerox machine. And I used to take our, this is, this is a, a funny kind of thing, I think. I used to take my handwritten tablatures. Hmm. Go down to the to his office, which was in New York, Midtown Manhattan, and um, I would sneak into his Xerox room and run off quickly, run off ten copies of each page or fifteen copies or whatever it was, wrap them up, take them home, and then that would would be get wrapped up with the tape in the box that we would send out then to people. So it was pretty funky and homemade and you know, very crude at the back in those days. Yeah. And so what was the, the sort of first development from that that sort of made things simpler? Was it cassettes? Was that the next sort of like cassettes audio cassettes? Was the next thing. Yeah. Cassettes was definitely the next thing that came in maybe a year or two after we started. That was a whole revelation that we had these little, little compact things that you could. And so what we did then was we got this, um, maybe three or four years in, we got a high-speed duplicator, which was a big deal. It was a gigantic piece of equipment, mm-hmm. and it did it did reel-to-reel tape. It took a, a reel-to-reel master tape, and it copied to at high speed to a reel-to-reel 
uh, copy, and then it would also take three cassettes at the same oh, time. Wow. So we could make both reel-to-reel and cassettes. And the other thing is we used to have to turn, like do one side of the tape and then turn it over to do the other side. For those of you who are younger than a certain age, wouldn't realize that those tapes came in, they was two sides of a tape. Yeah. Um, just like there were two sides of an LP. Um, but this, uh, this high speed duplicated did both sides at once. So it did the forwards and backwards at the same time, but it, it worked out. So that, so that put us into a different realm of the business where we could make these things. It wasn't that high speed, but it was probably maybe three times normal speed, which to us was a, big deal yeah i um, think the first the first homespun product that i encountered was i must have been about 17 or something this back in the 80s and um like a friend handed me this box of richard thompson uh transcriptions oh, yeah. and cassettes and went listen to this you can sit at home and learn like these pieces and he like richard uh-huh. thompson teaches you guitar and just having my mind blown right. that like this person <laughs> whose records i listen to could come and sit in my bedroom with me and teach me how to play yeah, it's just, yeah. You know, it's such a, an intimate yeah, Richard, thing. I think we did Richard a little later. That was probably the early 80s, maybe just before videos came in. Mm. Um, I remember I went out to California. I don't remember if I was there anyway, but I met up with him. He was living in L.A. at the time, so I convinced him. He And he, at that point, he wasn't much of a teacher. Uh, now he's gotten more into teaching because he has this camp that we do every summer we do yeah. it together i'm part of the the thing and uh anyway that's a diversion but yeah so what happened was in the by the time the 70s came around we i started going further afield and getting more um more of the bluegrass people involved people like dan mm. crary um who was a natural teacher Dan is not only a fine guitar player, but a very, very good teacher. And then I met people like Sam Bush, convinced Sam Bush to make mandolin. These were audio, still audios before videos came out. Uh, mm. Tony Rice did a bunch of stuff with Tony Rice. Um, Tony Trishka with Bill Keith. Um, my, you know, just um, I just started trying to find people who were willing to do it. And the, the bluegrass, and of course, bluegrass is such a participatory kind of music yeah. that it people like to share the licks and the stylistic, you know, interesting stuff. And um, once, once people like Tony and, and Sam Bush were on board, um, it was it was not hard to get other bluegrass people to say, okay, maybe I'll get on this too. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and then a, yeah, yeah. Go I was going to say it's such such a, a sort of an, an oral tradition anyway that being able to actually hear it is such a big part of it, isn't it? You know, you don't you can't just oh, learn bluegrass from a book. Right, right. Even though I did write a book called Bluegrass Guitar around that time too, but <laughs> uh, but yeah, I agree. You you really can't. Um, and the other thing that I discovered about myself was that some some of these guys, like Tony, for instance, who was a, a wonderful guy, but he hadn't taught before. So I got myself into this position of being the um, interlocutor. I was the the kind of uh, the interviewer who tried to draw it out of him and say, "Wait yeah. a minute, what was that? What was that lick you just did there?" Because you know that went by too fast so can you slow that down for people that kind of thing and um i i ended up there there is some bluegrass and other folk blues rock artists that are natural teachers and do it all the time um somehow sam bush was always a natural at just either looking at a camera or getting going to microphone and just talking and doing it other people like Tony, not so much. So uh, people like uh, Dr. John, who I did originally on audio tapes on mm. piano, New Orleans piano. He was another one. Never, re- It's so natural for these guys to sit down and play that they don't actually analyze it themselves. So I had to say, 
you know, stop, you know, people aren't going to know what's your left hand doing? What's your right hand doing? You know, how are you holding that pick? Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it was a little more challenging for on straight audio because I had to really say, okay, now talk about your left hand, now talk about your right hand. When we got into video in the early eighties, uh, then we could do multiple cameras, split screens, and you could see up close what people were doing. I think that's really interesting. You were sort of talking about whether people are naturally teachers or not. And th those um, the videos you did with Tony Rice and you did some with Norman Blake as well, where you sort of sit in conversation yeah. with them almost and then you stop them and say what you're doing. Like I find myself <laughs> going back to those and just watching them with a beer sometimes because they're just like they're, they're, they're watchable in their whether you're sitting there with your guitar trying to learn something or not. They're just they're fascinating documents. And um, and there's a there's a, a couple that you did with Sam Bush doing the same for Bill Monroe and sort of getting Bill Monroe to talk and right. and bring it out of them. They're they're really interesting sort of documents right. in that their own right. Yeah, that was one where we were completely. I mean, that was getting Bill Monroe to sit down on a video, and John Hartford interviewed yeah. him and and uh, get his band, the Bluegrass Boys, behind him and all that stuff was a huge thing. I couldn't have done that without. Ralph Rinsler and the Smithsonian. Uh, Smith, Ralph Rinsler was at one time Bill Monroe's manager mm. and also a, a musician in his own right. Um, but then Bill Monroe was not much of a teacher. And at this point, he was quite an advanced age as well. So after we did that, I got a hold of Sam Bush and I said, can you can you be the interpreter of Bill Monroe. So we did a separate video with Sam taking what Bill did and breaking it down for the player. The whole, I always had in mind what the player who's maybe not that accomplished is going to grasp from these things that we're putting out. And you don't want something, you don't want somebody to just say, Oh, that was nice, but I have no idea what they did. Cause then, yeah, yeah. It, it, so you, we we always had the idea that we were both teaching and documenting. You know, that was always think, part of our part of our um approach. And I think that is really interesting because like if you go back through the catalogue of of, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of lessons you put out, it it although it started as instruction, it sort of exists now as a document of some of these players that aren't with us anymore and well, stylistically them, yeah. the way and the way the music's played has, has probably changed in the past few decades and the way people talk about it. And it is a, a sort of uh, archive. I don't want to say archive because that sounds like it's, you know, it's all in the past, but it's, it is a, a sort of living document of, of how the music's changed and, and the major people in it. And it's, it's incredibly valuable in its own right for that. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, I, I do have a very strong sense that as time goes on and we lose people um, that, uh, this is kind of part of their legacy. Mm. You know, I mean, they have, they have CDs, they have maybe some videos of performances, but this is something where they're actually talking about their, their ideas and their, how they think about their music. And we just, in the last week, we just lost Kelly Joe Phelps, yeah. um, who was one of, one of my favorites. Um, and he did two videos for us. And I just feel well, you know, terribly sad that we lost him, but very proud that that document exists of him talking about his music. And I was uh, thinking Tom about Brett today. Just, well. Yeah, and as I went through my notes today before we before we spoke to realize today, as we record this, is would have been Tony Rice's birthday. Um, and that you know, oh, I that. okay, and then huh. having that archive of of his because, and as you say, somebody that not um, necessarily going to be particularly forthcoming with things like that. And, and then Norman Blake, the same Norman Blake, you know, keeps himself to himself by all accounts. And just so to have these, these records of people talking about, about how they approach things, because anybody can sit down and tell you where somebody puts their fingers, but to hear, hear how somebody approaches it and what they're thinking when they do it is just such a huge insight. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I think Tony, for one, um, really appreciated what we did because, uh, you know, when I first approached him, it was around 70, maybe 1978 or so, 77, 78. Um, as I said before, he, 
he had never really taught anything. Um, and somehow the sessions we did together set us up for a friendship that went right until the time he passed. Um, he was always appreciative and he did several videos for us. I mean, quite a few. In fact, the very first one he did was one of the first videos we ever did. And it was quite a, not a great a experience for him or for us, not what came out, what came out was great. But, um, we, we went into, we were here and he came to Woodstock to visit us. This was probably 1983, maybe 84 or something like that. And, uh, we booked Todd Rundgren's studio here in Woodstock, hmm. but he had never really done any video there. And it turned out it was the winter and there was no heat. So it was freezing in the studio. And there were all kinds of technical glitches. And by the time we got the tape running, poor Tony had been sitting there for hours. And somehow for a guy who was, everybody knows, a very high-strung individual, not only his guitar is a high-strung, but he's, he was a, but he could not have been more patient and nicer. And what came out of that was some songs that, like his Church Street Blues um, which has been bootlegged innumerable times on YouTube and has gotten millions of views. Unfortunately, those millions of people don't think ahead and then buy his video, but uh, at least at least they are watching it, so that's good. Yeah, those those on Tony are some of my favorites. I just find myself going back to those. I've got them, uh, you know, now you can buy the downloads and, and stream things. I've got those just on my phone, and if I'm ever... Stuck somewhere right. for half an hour waiting for something to do. I'll just watch a bit of Tony Rice or a bit of Norman Blake and just, you know, fill fill a happy half hour. And that um yeah. sort of that that point then where you started doing video, that was and that's sort of a game changer really to actually be able to see what people are doing. I, yeah, we when as soon as I saw videotapes coming on the scene, I immediately said, We gotta do this. You know, when they were first coming out. In fact, we sent out a questionnaire to our mailing list at the time. I had no, I had no idea how many people were on it, but, and it was, of course, a physical questionnaire, like on paper, in envelopes, sending it out to, you know, a few thousand people probably saying, if we started making videos, would you be interested in buying them? And some huge percentage said, no, we're not interested in, you know, uh, we don't even know what it is. We don't, we're not interested. So we said we're doing it anyway. And it was quite a lot of learning on the spot because I knew nothing about video production. I didn't, you know, I, but I found a good videographer here in Woodstock and other places went to Nashville for a lot of our, um, a lot of our bluegrass stuff was actually shot in Nashville. Um, and, uh, you know, learning, kind of learning on the job. So you can almost see the progression from our earliest videos to as I got more proficient, um, understanding how you call the cameras and get the angles and all that stuff. Um, so I, I eventually got reasonably good at directing these things. Um, and then so, I guess, um, that that was sort of it. I mean, that was sort of it for a while. It was a, that's when I. So I mean, I until I did a little bit of research, I didn't really realize how long Homespun had been around. You know, for me, it was cassettes and VHS in the eighties, and and then on through that. Yeah. But you know, like like listening back to what you were saying about the open real tapes and stuff, and then like probably just as you've amassed a huge amount of stuff on VHS, along comes DVD, and <laughs> the world changes again. Right, and that was another big change for us because. We had all this stuff on VHS. Um, and then we said, well, we probably have about five years to change over from VHS to DVD. It happened so fast that we had to do everything in a year, within a wow. year. And we had several hundred programs at that point on VHS. So we did this massive effort to digitize everything. And, um, you know, that was when 
the homespun really took off when DVDs came out because it was the medium that everybody wanted at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so for, I don't know, what, 10, 15 years, DVDs were the the hot thing. Um, Now people don't even have DVD players anymore. No, I don't. I, I dug out. I took out one of those Bill Monroe DVDs the other day, and I was going to. I was like, "Oh, what? Do, what? What? Where, where do I put this?" <laughs> just like right. it hadn't occurred to me that you know, that yeah. I, I just don't have the technology anymore. You're right. Um, but you know, we um, we did it. We you know, with we had a, a really good staff, and and Jane again was very organized, and we had lists upon lists of what should, you know, go first, when these things should get transferred and all that stuff. Uh, but we managed to do it, get everything. Uh, and then before we knew it, I mean, it was literally within a year, we couldn't sell a VHS tape. Nobody wanted uh-huh. one. Um, but we kept putting out new stuff and uh, we got some, you know, when since you're a, more of a bluegrass-oriented um, show, you, your listeners are more bluegrass-oriented, um, bluegrass was always a big part of what we did, you know, with people like Pete Wernick, uh, who was a very, uh, important part of our banjo collection of, of instruction. And he's a natural teacher. We didn't have to tell him how to teach. He's, he just does it. Um, and he did his jamming also jamming videos, which are very popular. Um, and, um, another banjo player, Bill Evans, and we got, a lot of old time players, Mike Seeger. Um, actually, my biggest hero and the person who started me on in music was Pete Seeger. And Pete agreed to do a video for us. And that was a huge thing for me. Um, and then Tom Bresh, who just passed away recently, was Merle Travis's son. So we got Travis kind of style. Um, uh, other, uh, you know, Fiddle players, some great fiddle players, some sing bluegrass singers, um, Daly and Vincent, who mm. are fantastic bluegrass singers, did two videos for us. Um, the Nashville Bluegrass Band, you know, we just we just kept trying to find people who were who, who we felt people wanted to learn things from. Yeah, just like looking through the list today, you know, sort of Ralph Stanley is in there, Mike Marshall, Doc Watson, Baylor Fleck. You know, there's such a Right from all, from all the areas, you know, through to Chris Thiele, and you know, everybody's in there. Um, yeah, and and some of the sort of some of the the lessons have become sort of iconic in their own right. So the parking lot pickers, you know, the solos every parking lot picker should know. The Steve Kaufman series have become Steve sort Kaufman of is another one. Steve Steve is actually one of our most prolific uh, flat picking instructors. And he's he's a He's a dynamo of uh, being able to take concepts and make them understandable for people. Uh, and did he, he yeah. did um, he did some of the Doc Watson lessons, didn't he? So the well, he, sitting with Doc. Yeah, it was interesting when I did my second my second video with Doc. We did the first one, which we shot at Merlefest, his festival that he does in North Carolina. And then um, I asked Doc if he would do another one for us just on his own, and he said yes. So, again, we went down to North Carolina, and he specifically asked for Steve Kaufman to be the guy to back him up, which was surprising because he had been working with Jack Lawrence and, you know, other guitar players, but he wanted Steve. And Steve, maybe he understood that Steve was a real teacher. And Doc, again, was one of those guys, uh, was not a, a natural teacher, although he certainly did an amazing job uh, putting putting his uh, talents out for people to understand. But he was such, such a wonderful, warm-hearted guy. And we got to work with Merle, his son, too. On, uh, but that, unfortunately, he passed before we could do any video with him. But I went down to Deep Gap, where they live in North Carolina, stayed at their house for uh, several days, and recorded Merle um, doing his guitar stuff, flat picking and slide guitar, finger picking too. So 
I got to know Doc and his family that way. And and the other thing I should add, because it's part of my life, is is what great friends I've made along the way with these people who are such they're incredible artists. And I feel like, you know, people like Sam and Tony and um, Bela and, you know, all these people are, are friends as well as people that made instructional videos for us. Yeah, I interviewed Tony Trishka fairly recently and I spoke to him just the other day and he said that you two had got together and, and done some playing recently. He played on my new CD, which is I'm just going to start mixing. I've got all the tracks now. And uh, he he came up to Woodstock uh, just about maybe a month ago. And, um, yeah, actually it was on my birthday in May. And uh, he he played on two songs that are going to be on my next CD, um, which, because I'm not really a bluegrass player myself, but I incorporate some of that into my, uh, so Jay Unger uh, played some fiddle on a song and uh, Bruce Molsky played some banjo. And, you know, I get, I sort of cross over into those areas. I'm more of a folky, a bluesy kind of guy, but I love, I love bluegrass too. I was going to ask you about that actually, just sort of looking back across the decades at the the catalogue of stuff like with the idea that you know things are looked at as being blues or bluegrass or folk or old time or was that sort of in the in the 60s maybe 70s was that as clear-cut did people think of it as being distinct styles or was it all sort of considered just yeah. acoustic music yeah it was there was so much crossover you know the nitty-gritty dirt band was not a bluegrass band they didn't come from the hills of north carolina but look at the impact they made on the bluegrass world with, uh, will the circle be unbroken? Um, and you know, I came out of the Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, Josh White, um, Brownie McGee, who was my teacher, you know, blues and folks, folk songs. But I got to hear Bill Monroe at Carnegie hall and I got to hear flat and scrugs at Carnegie hall. So they came to New York. Um, Clarence White came with the Kentucky colonels and played at, little cafe in Greenwich Village. So, I, you know, bluegrass was always kind of part of the scene, and but it wasn't it wasn't quite as delineated as something other. Um, maybe now it's it's a little more fractured. I'm not sure, but there's still a lot of crossover between old time music and bluegrass, and um, a lot of people play it all. I mean, look at Billy Strings, the new phenomenon mm. of guitar playing, and he plays everything. And I don't think he'd be pigeonholed into saying, I just play bluegrass, because he doesn't. Um, and, you know, you could say that, and mention Chris Thiele and the Punch Brothers and people like that, you know, it's there's a lot of bluegrass in there, but mm. um, but it's a lot more than that, too. So the, the music world, I think, has expanded, even though there are pockets of, like, festivals where you you can't, still can't bring drums, <laughs> you know, or, or electric instruments. Um, there is that. And I think that's good that there's, that stays that way too. Uh, yeah. There's, there's certainly enough um, breadth of music and festivals. And, you know, that's one of the, one of the joys of living in such a connected world is that whatever it is you're into, however niche it is, you can find some people who just like that, but you also mm -hmm. can find lots of other, you know, like, somebody like me living in England, um, I can feel connected with through things like homespun, but also through Facebook or artist works or YouTube or, you know, sure. I, I feel connected to a community of musicians who like the similar kind of music that I like and are learning to play. It. And, you know, I feel like we're all learning together, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a long tradition of people in Britain playing bluegrass and American style music. I mean, not only, not to mention rock and roll and rockabilly and all that stuff. Um, in fact, a, a really good friend of mine who you may know, who's going to be coming over once again to be part of Richard Thompson's frets and refrains camp here is Martin Simpson. Um, who's, as you know, he's just a totally brilliant guitarist, songwriter, singer. Um, and he often incorporates American country and traditional American styles into his uh, into his music and he'll play banjo or he'll play you know old Appalachian ballads just as much as he'll play 
English ballads or, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I just love what he does. And he'll, I, I'm looking forward to seeing him here in, in my, my area again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of now things have moved on beyond DVD to the world of digital and, and streaming as that, has that sort of made more of the content available to more people? Has that sort of totally opened it up? I think it does make it, um, it makes it available mainly because it's so instant. Hmm. And especially if you're, for instance, if you're in Britain and you order a DVD from us, you're going to have to wait for it to go across the ocean. Or especially if you're in Australia or Japan where we have people who buy our stuff. Now, wherever you are in the world, it's just a click away. There it is. Uh, it's instant. And frankly, we've, we've actually, after I mentioned all the work we did in making all those hundreds and hundreds of VHS into DVDs, now we don't have DVDs anymore. <laughs> it's all downloadable or streaming. Uh, so it's all just online and, um, in some ways it makes things very easy for the customer. Um, mm. you know, they don't have something in there. I still, I still like to get CDs for instance and hold them in my hand and look at them and you know, all that stuff. Um, but on the other hand, I rarely put that, put them in a CD player. I just go on to, I put them in the computer or I'd listen to some streaming service. And it's the same with homespun. I think people, now are used to the idea that, oh, I want to, I want to play Norman Blake's uh, song, so I want to learn how to play that. So I'll go to the homespun site, purchase it, and there it is. You know, like right there, right that minute, you can do it. So um, anywhere in the world. So you know that that makes a big difference, I think, to the accessibility of our stuff and everybody else's stuff. You know, we're certainly not the only ones that do that, but uh, we had to make that change along with everybody else. And so there's like literally no physical product at all anymore. No. Well, some books there's, we still have some books, uh, some books with audio that you can download. Uh, we have a, um, we have some books through, through Hal Leonard corporation, which is, was our distributor for many, many years, 20 some years when we had DVDs. And now they're doing some books with us and that kind of thing. So we're still publishing books with them. In fact, we have probably in the next few months, we're going to have a homespun songbook, which will oh, be wow. a physical product, but it'll have a hundred songs that with guitar chords and notes that I made for each song and how, you know, how to play them and that kind of thing. And does that, so, the lack of physical product, does that sort of take away a huge logistical headache or is it just a different logistical headache now? Oh, well, the, the main thing for us is that we don't have to have 10 people or 15 people packing and shipping stuff and printing labels and printing covers. And, does, you know, it's it makes it very much easier for us. And we can put something out in a matter of two or three weeks after we record it, rather than waiting for pressing plants and buying the boxes and printing the slicks and getting the printing, the tablature. Now it's just a PDF, you know, and it go, it just can go out almost, almost, we just have to edit and put it together and send it out to people. So that's, uh, that makes it, makes it a very different process for us. And how much, um, curious to know how much of the lessons you've recorded over the years sort of haven't made it through to the, the sort of digital area, if the stuff that's naturally fallen by the wayside, is it pretty much all still out there? Very few. There are a few that we felt didn't, maybe they, we, they were made early enough so that the, the video quality wasn't good enough that kind of thing. Uh, a few audio products that we still have to digitize and maybe get out at some point. But it's very, very few. Almost everything that we ever made is available. 
So we're, we're proud of that. You know, I think and there's so much of it, you know, I, I, um, I subscribe to your daily emails, partly because there's, you know, offers and discounts right. in them, but partly it's just a way of finding out what's in the catalog because it's just a different selection of stuff every day. And there's so that's much right, in there. Yeah. It sort of surfaces things that I didn't know existed. Well, that's the reason we do it in a way. And, and my wife, again, Jane, does most of the work on setting those things up every day, uh, figuring out what didn't we do for the last five, six weeks or months or whatever, you know, what do we need to bring forward? Um, and because it is such a big catalog and it's no longer a paper catalog that we send out to people, uh, things get lost. So these, these emailings help, as you say, they also, they, they're always discounted stuff. Um, and we try to bring it to the attention, bring to people's attention, the things that we think maybe are really worthwhile, but they might have, they might not know who this person is. So this brings them to, you know, to the front, the front page, so to speak, you know? Yeah. I bought a, a great, um, just an audio course, but for sort of swing guitar rhythm the other day that I never would have found if I'd gone looking for it. I don't think it wouldn't have yeah, occurred to Mike me to, Dowling, to, you know, probably Mac Dowling, who's a fabulous player and teacher. Uh, one of my favorites actually. So yeah, he's one of those guys. He's not a household name. So people might just sort of go by and not notice. So if we put him front and center, um, or, you know, that, that kind of thing is, I think, very useful for people. Yeah. And we've, we've talked a little bit about some of the sort of specific lessons and the people you work with. I wonder if, and maybe it's sort of impossible over such a span of work, but if there's any people in particular or particular lessons you're most fond of or most proud of or sort of look back on with a lot of affection. Oh, there's so many. Um, you know, we have some people that we've, we've only managed to get one video of, but it's great, you know, like Brian Sutton. I mean, Brian Sutton's a fantastic musician, all-around guitar player. Um, the country star um, Steve Warner, we've got a couple of, we did a couple of videos with him. That's kind of thrilling. I mentioned Pete Seeger. Um, uh, Dr. John is a, a big one for us. Um, and that was a thrill to get him both on audio and video. Um, mm. Donald Fagan from Steely Dan uh, did a video for us uh, on his piano ideas. Um, you know, we could, I'd have to be looking at our website myself <laughs> to bring to mind some of these, some of these people um and I mentioned Kelly Joe Phelps, Woody Mann, who's a wonderful, who also we lost this year, a fantastic guitar player and all-around um, musician, just wonderful player. Um, so a lot of them are, are based on my personal relationships with people. Um, and, you know, as people like Tony Trishka, uh, always a, such a treat to work with. Um Bill Keith, of course, who we lost a few years ago, was a close friend, lived just a mile down the down the road from us. Um, and of course, you, so, you you sort of taught lessons throughout as well, haven't you? You still you still teaching now? Through yeah, I still do. I mean, probably I'm sure I have more lessons than anybody else on homespun, um, and that was my calling. Even when I was in college, before I was a professional musician. I might've been playing for two or three years before I started teaching. <laughs> and I took, I took lessons with Brownie McGee, the great blues guitarist for uh, two or three years. And when I, I got married right out of college and the only way I could think of to make a living other than the fact that I was an English literature major, which didn't do me much good, you know, in the, in the job market. I started teaching guitar and then started playing in, you know, different groups. But, uh, when, when that fell down, when that, you know, I left a group, for instance, the, the group called the new world singers in the early sixties that, um, recorded for, for Atlantic records and toured around for a while. And, um, 
when I left that group, I went back to teaching guitar. And uh, I actually continued teaching guitar privately for many years when the gigs were not as plentiful as they could have been. Um, and I still, to this day, do some workshops. Um, every year I do at least two or three teaching guitar camps, one with Richard Thompson, um, one with Jorma Kalkinen, uh, who's a wonderful guy, and I've done his camp for 20-some years. So I still do teach, um, and uh, and I, I still enjoy it. But I don't, uh, I don't have a, a slew of private lessons anymore. You know, I gave that up a while ago. And um, so, what's coming up, like both for you and for Homespun? Obviously, you just mentioned you've got a new CD coming out soon. Right. That's a that's separate from Homespun. That's my mm-hmm. other side, my performing and, um, you know, my solo side, more or less. More, more or less. Um, we're still putting out new stuff. Uh, I We just put out a new lesson in the last few days with Toby Walker, who's one of our most popular blues finger-picking teachers. Um, my son, Adam, who's also a big part of the – I should have mentioned him earlier. He's He's been our main editor of videos, and he's produced a lot of lessons. He lives in California, so he's on the opposite coast. Um and he's he's making a series of lessons on uh, kind of fretboard theory for us, uh, how you get around the fretboard, how you know the notes and the strings and the frets and all that stuff. So that is something we're working on now and should be out in the next couple of months, I would think. So we're not putting them out at the pace we used to, but we're still putting out new stuff. And um, we have a few friends here in Woodstock that I'm trying to finagle into the studio. We had to stop for a while because people didn't want to get into a closed studio with the COVID thing going on. And, um, you know, the whole, the music, the whole atmosphere has changed so much with, with the virus. So we're, uh, we're trying to get around that. And we have our own little studio now in our office and nice lights and cameras and set up. So, and I've been doing my own lessons there, so that uh, you know, some of them would you almost qualify as bluegrass? Although I'm not a bluegrass player, but um, I, d- I did a lesson on "Will the Circle Be Unbroken," but it's more of a finger picking style thing. But I sort of Mother Maybell Carter style. Um, but you, kind of you have it. your um, have your own signature guitar now, don't you, from Santa Cruz? I do. Um, yeah, uh, the Santa Cruz Guitar Company, which is a wonderful uh, sort of boutique car guitar uh, outfit out in Santa Cruz, California, um, offered and I accepted uh, this beautiful signature guitar that uh, I helped design. And they made and they made a whole run of them. They're still selling them in stores as far as I know. But I got I got mine and actually my son actually just got one too so we we have twin twin guitars it's it's an absolutely stunning instrument um and uh if anybody's interested in going to the santa cruz guitar company online on their website you can see uh my it's called an ht13 um cool yeah that's a link in the show notes so people can go and see wonderful instrument yeah so cool. Well, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes, and obviously, I'm going to link to to Homespun and maybe some links to some of my favourite lessons over the years that I've I've enjoyed. Um, is there anywhere else I can send people for information? Any anywhere it'd be useful for me to link to? Um, well, aside from Homespun, my my personal website. If you're interested in um, my bio and my you know where I'm playing, um, uh, would be just happytram.com. Um, and I'm sort of gradually adding some video performances there, you know, from mostly from YouTube. Um, and, um, I think that's probably, you know, my son, Adam Traum is doing some beautiful songwriting and, uh, it's Adam Traum. I think it's Adam Traum guitar.com. He's a very good player, very good songwriter. 
Um, and, you know, I, I actually miss I, coming over to the UK. Um, and, you know, I think when, when the world calms down a little bit and those little bugs in the air kind of go, maybe go away or we get immunity or whatever, I'd love to come back. The last time I was there was, um, boy, maybe four, four or five years ago, I did a show at the, uh, Cecil Sharp house in London, uh, which was really, really nice. I had a really good time doing that. It's a very cool uh, place. It's a, it's yeah, just a really nice. sort of one, one off place. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I'm going to stick some notes, uh, links to all of that in the show notes. And uh, I'll also stick a link in. Happy has very kindly given us a discount code that listeners to Bluegrass Jamalong can use to go and get some money off some of these great homespun lessons. So I'll put all the information for that in the show notes yeah. as well. Great. Um, yeah. But thank you. This has been an absolute treat. Very nice meeting you. And, and thanks. Uh, thanks for doing this. Um, I hope, uh, hope you listeners enjoy it. I don't know about you, but I really enjoyed that one. That was, um, yeah, a really fun conversation to get a chance to be part of. So thank you, Happy. Um, links in the show notes to all the stuff we talked about and also details of that discount code. Um, Happy set up a code that is just the word JAMALONG, and that will get you 20% off everything you want at Homespun uh, for the next few weeks. Um, the code is valid until the 8th of July 2022. Um, just putting that out there for those of you who will be downloading and listening to this after that date because I'm sure there'll be plenty more people hearing this in the future um, but yes you've got a few weeks to grab some bargains I'm going to list some of my favourite lessons in the show notes uh, but do take advantage of that and get your 20% off great I'll see you next time have a good week happy picking Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s visit collingsguitars.com and find out why